Amen. We have no other king but Jesus. That fits well with what we're going to talk about this morning. So we think about the kingdom of God. If you have a Bible, you can open uh, to a number of passages this morning. The first is going to be John chapter 18. There's some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with the message. We've spent the first couple of months of this year talking about the church, and we have been pulling out different metaphors uh, that the New Testament uses to help us understand the church. And so week one in this series, back on New Year's Day, we talked about uh, the church itself. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said that he would build his church. That word church, ecclesia, means congregation. It means assembly. And Jesus is promising that he will build a church. We've talked about the church as the body of Christ. Jesus cares about the health of his body, the health of his church. Every member, every part of the body is essential, and every part of the body needs to do its part, needs to fulfill its function in order for the body to be healthy. We talked about the church as the family of God. God has adopted us into his family, which means we are family. Like it or not, the people sitting close to you are your family. They are your church family. If you want to be part of God's family, then you get to be part of a local church family. Corey preached on the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Believers individually have the Holy Spirit living in us, but the church corporately is also the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the church as a holy nation We're citizens of heaven. We are the flock of God. Jake preached on the church as the flock of God, and then last week the church as the field of God. This morning we're going to talk about the kingdom of God, and I want to start with a couple of disclaimers, and I want to start with this disclaimer. The church is not exactly the same as the kingdom of God. Those are not the same realities biblically and theologically. All these other metaphors the New Testament uses directly and says the church is like this. The church is a field. The church is a body. The church is a temple. But this idea is a little bit different. The Bible, especially the New Testament, has an awful lot to say about the kingdom of God. So much that it's impossible to pick one specific passage and to say that this passage says everything that the New Testament says about the kingdom of God. So if we were to pick one particular passage this morning, like we've done in previous weeks, every week in this series we've had a home-based text. We've talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then we've landed somewhere and said this is our passage for the morning. We don't really have that this morning because there's not one and only one passage that could say everything that the New Testament has to say about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to try to make sense of that this morning. If you want to play Bible drill and keep up with some of the verses that we look at, you're more than welcome to flip in your copy of the scriptures. Some of these verses will be on the screen as we go this morning. So let's just start with the phrase, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. What do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God? Most basically, we're talking about God's reign, God's rule, or God's sovereignty. That's the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a thinking person, the first thing that might pop into your head is, doesn't God reign over everything? The answer is yes. Doesn't God rule over everything and everyone? The answer is yes. The Bible speaks of His sovereignty and His omnipotence 
in that way. Isn't God sovereign over everything? Absolutely. The Bible says that God is sovereign over absolutely everything that happens. So in your brain, you begin to think, I got it. Everything is the kingdom of God. No, not quite. When we talk about the kingdom of God as his reign, as his rule, as his sovereignty, we're thinking about something a little bit more focused, and we're thinking about the people who gladly, joyfully live under God's reign, under God's rule, under God's sovereignty. We're thinking about the people who acknowledge God's reign and his rule and his sovereignty. Next, the kingdom of God, you're going to like this one, is already and not yet. It is now present and it's not yet here It's in the future. Clear as mud? Everybody tracking with me? One of the things that might help you in thinking about this idea that the kingdom of God is here and it's not here is to think about what the Bible says in the Gospels about the kingdom of God. Mark and Luke, they use the phrase the kingdom of God. Matthew prefers the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. He just subs that out. He's very Jewish. That's a very Jewish phrase. Matthew uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. John, who wrote a very different gospel than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he wrote much later, John talks about the kingdom of God, but what he really talks about the most is eternal life. And what I'm saying to you is that all these guys are essentially talking about the same thing. The reign and the rule and the sovereignty of God over the lives of his people in a special way. And when you think about the kingdom already being here and not yet being here, it's present, but it's also coming, you might think about eternal life. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus, and we asked you this morning, do you have eternal life today? The answer to that question would be, yes. I was dead in sins, but God made me alive, and he has given me eternal life in Jesus Christ. You have it now. If I asked you, as a follow-up question, are you looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and we live with him forever, you would say, yes. I have eternal life now, but I'm not yet experiencing the fullness of what that will be someday. That's the same idea underneath this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. You can enter it today. You can be part of this kingdom today. And even as you're part of that kingdom, you're looking and you're waiting and you're hoping and you're praying that God's kingdom would come. So it's already and it's not yet. It's present and it's coming. Let's think Old Covenant, New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the kingdom of God was at work primarily in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. And we're going to circle back to that in just a minute. In the New Covenant, the kingdom of God is primarily at work through the church. We're New Covenant believers. We look back at the Old, and we say in the Old Covenant, God's kingdom was primarily at work through this nation, Israel the Hebrew people. But now in the New Covenant, we acknowledge with everything we've said about the church and everything we read in the New Testament, that in the New Covenant, God's kingdom is at work in and through His church. If you want a deep dive on the kingdom of God, there is one scholar that you ought to read 
and follow. His name is George Eldon Ladd. He's passed away some number of years ago. He was a troubled man, but he was a brilliant scholar. And essentially what he did in his writing is he took all these ideas about the kingdom of God. It's here, it's coming, we have it, we don't have it yet. And he basically said all of this stuff has to fit under one umbrella. Uh, we believe the Bible is true and it doesn't contradict itself. So we've got to take all these disparate ideas about the kingdom and bring them together. Lad did that. One of his books that I've put up on the screen is The Presence of the Future. He has several other books that are very helpful. But in Presence of the Future... He makes these five statements about the kingdom of God. And I think this is a nice summary for thinking about the kingdom as it relates to the church. Number one, the church is not the kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. Those two things are not exactly the same. Number two, the kingdom creates the church. The rule and the reign and the sovereignty and the power of God at work in the lives of his people creates the church. Number three, the church witnesses to the kingdom. It is the job of the church to say to men and women, boys and girls, that the kingdom of God has broken into this world and the call on their life is repentance and faith. We bear witness to the reality of the kingdom of God. Number four, the church is the instrument of the kingdom. How is it that the kingdom is working in the world today. Primarily is through this instrument of the church. The kingdom creates the church. The kingdom is at work in and through the church. And lastly, the church is the custodian of the kingdom. That doesn't mean we're about to hand you a mop and a broom. That means as the church, Matthew 16, we have been given the keys. Jesus said to his disciples, I'll build a church. I'll build it on you, Peter. You're the rock. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and the things that you bind will be bound, and the things that you loose will be loosed. Jesus is talking about this role of stewardship, this role as a custodian that the church has over the kingdom. So that's a summary, and I know that's a bit academic, but this is a complex topic in the New Testament. It's a massive topic in the New Testament, and you can't talk about the church without also talking about the kingdom. So let's start by going backwards. Let's talk about the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament background for us being able to understand the kingdom of God? And without being too trite or simplistic, it's basically the entirety of the Old Testament. You want to understand the kingdom of God, what the New Testament says about the kingdom of God. You, ought to, you have to understand the role of Israel, which was essentially a kingdom. It was a nation in the Old Covenant. Now, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but I'm about to summarize the entire Old Testament for you in about two minutes. After creating mankind and then destroying the earth in a flood and then scattering the peoples at Babel, the Lord God entered into a covenant relationship with a man named Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob. And God promised the patriarchs that he would take them, this small family, and he would turn them into a kingdom. The Lord God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, a great kingdom, and kings will come from you. Abraham's family ended up as slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt so that they could be a kingdom unto him, a kingdom of priests, 
following the Lord and serving the Lord and trusting the Lord. And he brought the people out in the Exodus and he brought them into the promised land and the conquest that they might be a kingdom. And then you come to the period of the book of Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that there's a problem. The problem, which is summarized in Judges, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king. They had a kingdom, but they didn't have a king to rule over them. And everyone simply did what was right in their own eyes, and it was a mess. So God gave them a king. First Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And they had a real kingdom and a real king, but then the kingdom divided. There was a civil war, there was a split. The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And eventually, both of those kingdoms became so wicked that God kicked them out of the promised land and sent them into exile. That's the story of the Old Testament. Everything that you read between Genesis and Malachi fits into that story somewhere. It's all a story about a kingdom. Now let me mention two passages in particular that are noteworthy. One is Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It describes the Messiah as God's son who would one day rule over every king. David wrote Psalm 2. And David wrote it not about himself, not about his son Solomon, not about his grandson. He wrote it about God's son, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And in Psalm 2, David promises us that a day would come when God's son, the Messiah, would rule over every king and every kingdom with a rod of iron. A second important passage that you might read later today is Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we read promises, prophecies about a kingdom and about a king. Daniel 2 says, look, there's all these kingdoms of the world, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Romans, all these kingdoms, they come and they go. And Daniel 2 says a day is coming when a new kind of kingdom will come. It's not going to be like all these other earthly kingdoms. It's going to be an otherworldly kingdom, Daniel 2. Then in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision, and he sees the throne of heaven, and he sees one like a son of man coming and sitting on the throne. He sees the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the King of Kings. So that's Daniel, that's Psalm 2, that's the Old Testament. Let's ask this question. What does the New Testament say about the kingdom of God as it works through the church. I want to give you a few important ideas. Number one, the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. We've seen this from Daniel 2 and 7, but it's worth stating clearly, the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. If you have your Bible, you can look at John 18, verse 36. Jesus is speaking with Pilate just before his crucifixion. Jesus answered Pilate and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. If you've read this story in John 18, you know that Pilate was struggling to comprehend a kingdom that wasn't like the kingdom he was part of. 
He's struggling to understand what an otherworldly kingdom might be like. And if you've read the Gospels, you know the disciples had the exact same struggle. They struggled to understand, being Jewish men steeped in the Old Testament, what will it be like when a kingdom comes that is not an earthly kingdom? For example, you can read Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead and he's talking to the disciples. And Luke tells us in Acts 1-3 that Jesus is teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. This period before he ascends back to heaven, after the resurrection, he's appearing to the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. And they ask a question in Acts 1-6. The question they ask is, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, you keep talking about a kingdom. Is it time to reestablish Israel as a kingdom in the midst of all these earthly kingdoms? Now, have you ever been in Sunday school and you asked a question and the teacher looked at you and just shook their head and said, I am not going down that rabbit trail. This happens in my Sunday school class about five times a week. Somebody asks a question and I say, nope, 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 we're not talking about that. We're talking about this. We're moving in this direction. Don't take me. That's essentially what Jesus did to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. He's teaching them about the kingdom, and they say, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus basically, I imagine he rolls his eyes. I don't know if Jesus rolls his eyes, but I imagine he rolls his eyes, and he says to them, listen, fellas, fellas, you are going to be witnesses. Witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He just pivots away from this idea that Israel would be reconstituted as a kingdom. Why? It's because the kingdom of God in the new covenant is an otherworldly kingdom. It is not an earthly kingdom. So, let me be clear about a couple of things before we move on. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. Okay? I love the United States of America. I love the Stars and Stripes. Uh, I think of myself as a patriot. I love Lee Greenwood. I'd give him a hug if he was here this morning. Might even sing with him. I don't know. If I go to a sporting event and they play the national anthem, I'm up. I'm quiet. I'm paying. Love the United States. Fourth of July is coming. The weather's terrible right now. We're ready for summer. We're ready for sunshine. It's going to be hot and glorious. And I'm eating a hamburger and a hot dog. And I'm going to blow up fireworks. And I love the United States of America. The United States of America is not the kingdom of God. The United States of America is not, biblically speaking, the shining city on a hill. I love Ronald Reagan. But the United States of America is not the kingdom of God. We just need to be clear about that. The kingdom of God is an otherworldly kingdom. Now let me take that one more step further with fear and trepidation and say this. The kingdom of God is not, now in the new covenant, it is not the geopolitical nation state that we call Israel that was reconstituted in 1917, 1917 by the Balfour Declaration. It is not, that is not the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to take a trip to Israel later in the year. You're invited to come with us. We're going to go, and we're going to travel, and we're going to see sites, and we're going to study the Bible. But you understand, we're not going to the kingdom of God. We're going to a nation that we call Israel. 
the kingdom of God in the new covenant is not an earthly kingdom. Not in this country, not in any other country. Number two, how do you get into the kingdom? How do you enter it? You repent and believe. Repentance and faith are the only means of entrance into the kingdom of God. Now, if we were talking about an earthly kingdom, we might give a different answer. We might say if the kingdom of God were an earthly kingdom, we might say we have to be born a citizen. Or we might say, well, there's immigration papers that you have to fill out. Or we may say, here's somebody that can get you in secretly. There's means of doing that. We might come up with all sorts of ways of getting into an earthly kingdom. We have a team traveling to Kenya this summer. They're going to need a visa. It's called an e-visa. You pay 50 bucks, that's how you get into the country. We're not talking about an earthly kingdom. We're talking about an otherworldly kingdom. How do you get into an otherworldly kingdom? Jesus gives us the answer in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get in. You repent and you believe. Look, the Bible says that the one true God is holy, holy, holy. And the Bible is very clear that you and I, all of us are not holy. We're sinners. We're wicked, we're depraved, we're warped by sin to our very core. Every part of who we are is affected by and infected by sin. Left to ourselves, we have no right to be part of God's kingdom. However, God is a merciful God. We just sang a song about that. God's mercy. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. His mercy is greater. And in His mercy, He sent His Son to live on this earth, He lived a life of perfect obedience. To die on a cross, he died a substitutionary, a sacrificial death. And he lived for us and he died for us so that we could be welcomed into his kingdom. Look in your Bible at Colossians chapter 1. Jesus talked about repenting and believing Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Only God can transfer you from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of His Son. I can't do that for you. No religious clergyman or woman can do that for you. No magical prayer can do that for you. Getting wet in our baptistry will not do that for you. Coming to a plugged-in class at Emmanuel will not do that for you. There's only one means of entrance into this kingdom. Repent of your sin. Agree with God about your sin. Confess it to Him. Believe what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you repent of your sin and you believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His Son. That is the only means of entrance into this kingdom. Now, I want to say what I just said positively, negatively. 
So I'm going to say the same thing, but I'm just going to phrase it differently. Unrepentant sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the clear teaching of Scripture in places like 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5. Unrepentant sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want to make one small, quick, but I think relevant and important point before we move on. You and I live in an earthly kingdom. If you're a Christian, you have this dual citizenship. Citizen of heaven, part of a holy nation, you've been moved out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, but you're also living in the United States of America. In the United States of America, in this kingdom, we're living in the fallout of the sexual revolution of the 60s. Revolution that started the ball rolling on men and women can decide anything they want about being man or woman and do anything they want with men or women. We're living in the fallout of that right now in this kingdom. And living in the time and the place when you live, there will be people, if you try to make your stand on the word of God, there will be people at some point that will try to back you into a doctrinal theological corner. And they will ask you a question something like this. Oh, you're a Christian. You believe the Bible. Do you believe that this kind of person can go to heaven? Do you believe that this kind of person can be a Christian and be saved? And they're going to focus on one particular kind of sin, and they're going to back you into this corner, and you, in that moment, need to have the wisdom and the discernment and the courage to understand that 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5 are not singling out one kind of sin saying this is the only one that gets you out. What 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 5 are saying is any unrepentant sin keeps you out of the kingdom. If you take any sin, any sin, and you willfully, intentionally press on in that sin, and you are not sorry for it, in fact, far from being sorry for it, you make it your very identity If that's your decision, you need to understand unrepentant sin will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter what sin that it is. Now, when you get put in that corner, some of you have been put in that corner. I've been put in that corner. Nobody likes to be put into a corner. But as a people of God, all we can do is stand on the Scriptures. You don't have to apologize for the Bible. You don't have to be embarrassed about what the Bible says. Simply have to have the courage to say, you know what, I've read 1 Corinthians 6 and I've read Ephesians 5 and they're pretty clear that if you will persist in your sin and you will be unrepentant in it, whatever it may be, that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But you can say with complete confidence, if you will repent of your sin, if you will agree with God about your sin, don't agree with the world, but agree with God, and you will put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did on the cross, you'll be saved. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists out a long, nasty list of sins that were taking place in Corinth. Some of the ones that you get backed into a corner about are in that list, with lots of others. And he says to the Corinthians, some of you used to be this. Used to be. Past tense. You repented and you believed And God washed you and he cleaned you and he brought you into his family. He brought you into his kingdom. Truth number three. Believers are called to walk worthy 
of the kingdom of God. So Paul wrote a letter to the church in Thessalonica. He wrote two, actually. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says this. He says, You know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you would like to have the hope of the kingdom of God, it can be yours today. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just understand that contrary to what many churches preach, you are not free to do with whatever you please with the rest of your life. If God calls you into His kingdom, He calls you to walk worthy of His kingdom. He's not saying you have to earn anything. You can't earn anything. You'll never be able to earn anything. But he is saying that he wants you to agree with him about sin and he wants you to fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants you to follow him and walk worthy of his kingdom. Now, we could trace that in all sorts of directions. Let me tell you where Paul traces it in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he says walk worthy. First of all, he says, I want you to continue receiving the word of God as the word of God, not the word of man. I want you to continue to submit your life to the authority of Scripture. Secondly, Americans don't like this. He says, I want you to suffer well. Submit your life to the authority of Scripture and suffer well. How do I walk worthy as a Christian? Well, that's two pieces of the puzzle. Submit your life to the authority of God's Word and suffer well. Let me give you one more application that might be corporate in nature because we're talking about the kingdom of God as it relates to the church. I would submit to you that the reality of the kingdom of God shapes the way that we worship as a church. We've talked about this a lot over the last two months, the worship of the church. But the reality of the kingdom shapes our worship. For example, Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews tells us that we have received a kingdom. The first thing the author of Hebrews says is you should be grateful for that kingdom because you don't deserve to be part of it. God has graciously brought you into it, so you should be grateful for this kingdom. The second thing the author of Hebrews says as he's talking about this kingdom is you should offer, you the church, y'all, plural you, you should offer acceptable Worship. Acceptable worship. Now, I'm no English major, but if there is a thing the Bible would describe as acceptable worship, I'm led to believe that there is something the Bible might describe as unacceptable worship. Not everything that we lump under the umbrella of worship is actually acceptable worship. We've talked about this. We talked about the church over the last several weeks. What are we to do when we gather together in this room? Well, we're to worship. And Hebrews is clarifying that because we've been brought into a kingdom, we should offer acceptable worship. Paul traces it out like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He's writing to Timothy, his protege. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. He is giving Timothy a charge. 
is in light of the fact that Jesus will come back and he will bring a kingdom with him. Here's the charge. Verse 2, preach the word. That's something we do in our worship, right? How do we offer acceptable worship? Well, one of the things we have to do is preach the word of God, teach the word of God. What does that look like? Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. The time is coming, Paul says, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, by all means, preach the word of God. When we meet in this room, and I stand in front of you, or Corey, or Jake, or Chris, or Jason, or Ron, or anybody else stands up, our job is not to make you laugh. Our job is not to make you think we're really smart. Our job is not to make you think we're special or holy. Our, not, our job is not to, to impress you with how much we know about culture or how many pop culture references we can throw in. Our job is to talk about this book, to preach the Word. Why? Because Paul's charging Timothy in light of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back and bring a kingdom with him. Timothy, I'm charging you. Preach the word. One last truth. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom yet. Yet. One day it will be. I'm not going to have you turn to Revelation, but you can look at Revelation 11 and 19 later. Here's the good news about these two passages. You don't even have to agree with me about the book of Revelation to see what John's saying in these passages. You can break down the book of Revelation six ways from Tuesday. And what you'll find in Revelation 11 is that a day is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Jesus. The Lord Jesus will come back, and all these earthly kingdoms that you see today, they will be smoke, gone. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome, United States, geopolitical state of Israel, they'll all be gone. All human kingdoms will be gone. And the kingdom of God will take the place of the kingdom of men. The kingdom of God will come. And Revelation 19 describes the coming of that kingdom. The Lord Jesus will come back, not to suffer and to die, not to be born in a manger, but he will come back on a war horse as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. A day is coming when the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of Christ. And Jesus Christ will rule on this earth. What do we do until that day comes? Well, we do church. What does the word church mean? It means congregate. It means assemble. We congregate together. We assemble together. We meet together. What do we do when we congregate together and we meet together and we assemble together? We worship. We sing songs like we've sung this morning about God's mercy and about Jesus being the king. We sing songs about 
confessing our sin and trusting that Jesus Christ will come back. We pray, we talk to God, we believe that when we meet in this room, that God hears our prayers. He hears what we're saying when we talk to Him. We read the Scriptures. We read the Bible. We preach the Word of God in season and out of season. We baptize. When somebody puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we've been calling people to repentance and faith, we baptize them and we celebrate new life with them. And we take the Lord's Supper together. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we look in two directions. Number one, we look back and we remember what Jesus did in His life and His death and His resurrection. We remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ spilled that we might be brought into His kingdom. We also look forward, and you'll hear both of these looks, you'll see both of these looks when we take the Lord's Supper in just a minute, and we read from 1 Corinthians 11. We look back, we also look forward. We look forward to the day when Jesus Christ returns, when He comes back as the King, and when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're acknowledging, Jesus, we do not belong in your kingdom. Left to ourselves, we have no right to be in your kingdom. But by your great mercy, you have brought us into your kingdom. And we're thankful for that. So I'm going to give you a moment to pray. I'm just going to ask that you would bow your head. I'm going to give you a moment or two to think about the kingdom and the church and the king to think about what Christ has done to make us His own, to prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper, to look back and to look forward. I'll give you a few moments to pray, and then I'll pray for us and we'll take the Lord's Supper together.